We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Lately, when I go to tuck Shay into bed, she insists on sleeping with her little pink Bible that, that my mom gave to, gave to her. You know, it's got a little name engraved on the outside of it. Now, Shay is just three years old. She, she can't read. Um, but, it, but it's really pretty cute to see her laying there with her chubby little fingers wrapped around this pink book and opening it and holding it up. And half the time it's upside down. But she's moving her eyes, you know, back and forth across the line reading. Almost 140 years ago, Friedrich Nietzsche, he's one of the most influential philosophers of all time. He famously described truth as a mobile army of metaphors. Truth is a mobile army of metaphors, according to Nietzsche. In other words, Nietzsche was saying the only universal, constant, overarching, objective truth is power. It's our desire to control. So truth is a metaphor. It's a tool in your hand to mean what you want it to mean kind of thing. And ultimately, Nietzsche said, anytime somebody claims that something is morally right or morally wrong or good or bad, they're really just protecting their own vested interest. So anytime I make a claim to truth, I'm willing to have power over you. Now, if you look on the inside back cover of our worship guide, there's a list of our beliefs. And one of these beliefs, evangelical doctrine. Now, evangelical doctrine is shorthand for a a whole wide range of convictions. But look with the first conviction that we have listed there. We have a high view of the authority of Scripture. Okay, now here's what the story about Shea and the story about Nietzsche have to do with one another. We live in the Bible Belt. And there are many people in in this community who are like my three-year-old daughter, Shay, when it comes to Scripture. They have this innocent and endearing reverence for Scripture. But it's a book on a pedestal kind of view. Scripture is an object to be honored but they don't really understand what it has to do with them or how it works in power in their life or their family's life or in their vocation. On the other hand, maybe you've never heard of Nietzsche. Maybe you've never read Nietzsche and you don't really care what Nietzsche had to say. But Nietzsche's ideas, they are the cultural air that we breathe today, 140 years later. There's a significant part of of our community that has a deep suspicion of big companies and government and authorities and especially religion and the Bible. I'm reading Dan Brown's recent book right now, The Lost Symbol. This is every page of that book. It's this idea that anytime Christianity or the church or religion makes a claim to truth, really what's going on there is a grab for power. There's a protection of vested Interests. There are many people in our community who have a very real and deep suspicion that when the church appeals to the Bible to say this behavior is right and that behavior is wrong, what's really going on is a group of people just trying to protect the status quo. Now, that's Nietzsche played out 140 years later. 
The message tonight is about the authority of Scripture. What do we mean when we say that our church, All Things New, has a high view of the authority of Scripture? How exactly is the Bible authoritative? And how can the authority of Scripture play out in the life of our church as a whole and in our lives as individuals? Now, I'm not going to answer all of the challenges that Dan Brown makes through his fiction against the church or that Richard Dawkins or any of the kind of avant-garde cultural despisers of Christianity that any of them are making against the church today. What I want to do is I want to lay out a Christian view of the authority of Scripture. I want to show how the Bible actually functions in an authoritative way in our church, in our lives as individuals. Now, if there's a Bible near you, find Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul is writing this. It's a letter that he wrote to a group of Christians who lived in the city of Rome. And Paul says to them in Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, this is a foundational truth for what Christians believe regarding the authority of Scripture. And it's this. All authority is from God. All authority comes from God. Whether you're talking about a police officer or a corrupt Roman government. Okay? All authority is from God. So the authority of Scripture is really God's authority exercised through Scripture. Now, that's a a foundational concept that we have to hold in our minds as we look at these three passages that were read to us that help us come to grips with the authority of Scripture. That all authority is from God. So to talk about the authority of Scripture is really to talk about God's authority at work through Scripture. Now, that's what we see in Isaiah 55. You can turn there if you want to in this passage that Kate read to us. Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they've watered the earth. In other words, until they've done what they were supposed to do. Making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word, talking about scripture, be That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. Now, here's a a picture of Scripture itself pointing away from itself, right? Here is Scripture saying, really, Scripture is the Word of God. It's a tool in the hand of God accomplishing God's purpose. So we have a picture of Scripture pointing away From Scripture pointing to God. The authority of Scripture, in other words, is shorthand for God working powerfully through Scripture to bring about His kingdom. That's what the next two verses say. Verses 12 and 13. Look what the Word of God, Scripture, accomplishes. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Now, this is an image of humanity being reconciled to God. This is a a picture of humanity erupting in joy and peace, which is what we need on this earth. And then the next 
part of these verses talk about creation itself being healed. The kingdom of God healing creation. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, which would make Alan's job much easier, right? Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Do you see how creation itself is being healed? And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In these verses, what you're seeing in verses 10 and 11, and then in 12 and 13, you're seeing that Scripture is a vehicle that God uses to accomplish His purpose. That's what I mean when I say the authority of Scripture is God's power at work through Scripture. And what is God's purpose in this world? What is God up to in this world? We've talked about it time and time again. It shows up all over the pages of Scripture, the restoration of shalom. The flourishing of humans and their relationship with God and each other in the context of a renewed, thriving, luxuriant creation. This is God's purpose. This is what God is doing in the world. And this is what he's doing through Scripture. It's God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, it's the renewal of every square inch of creation. It's all things new. So scripture is a vehicle of, that God uses to bring about his kingdom. Now, the important question is what kind of vehicle is it? I mean, there's the rub. What kind of book is this? Is it a rule book? Is that the vehicle, a, a book of rules? Is it a repository of timeless truths a, a, or, or, or just a historical record of how God dealt with his people in ages past? Or is it a record of various people's own personal and unique and private religious experiences? Or is it just an aid for your devotions, fuel for your personal prayer life, fuel for meditation? Well, it's all of those things, but it's more. And it's the more bit that is so enormously important. You see, if we reduce the Bible to a storehouse of timeless truths, or we reduce the Bible to a record of a group of people a long time ago that are dead and their relationship to God, if we reduce the Bible to mere information, then we're going to miss how the Bible works with power in this world today. If our church is going to experience Scripture as the vehicle of God's action in the world today, if we're going to receive Scripture into our life as a church as a dynamic force that God is using to call us and shape us and equip us to be kingdom agents, agents working for the renewal of all things, then there's something more that we must see other than just a book of timeless truths, other than mere information. And this comes out of Acts chapter 2, the passage that Alan read to us. In Acts chapter 2, we have this phrase, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first thing we're told about the first group of people who responded to the gospel and formed the first church. The very first thing we're told about them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, to help you understand, let me tell you a fun little story, okay? Imagine for a moment, okay, put on your imagination cap. 
that we just discovered somewhere in Homewood, a long lost play written by Shakespeare. No, how it got to Homewood, who really knows, but it's there, okay? And, and when Shakespeare wrote it, it was immediately lost. It was never staged, and there's not any historical record of it. But all the top Shakespearean scholars in the world, they get together and they look at it and they say, oh, yeah, this is authentic. This is the bard himself. But there's one problem. Now, it's a five-act play, just like Romeo and Juliet, okay? And just like Romeo and Juliet, Act 5 has three scenes. And our problem is the second scene of the final act, Act 5, is missing. It's not there. We've got act one, all of it, act two, act three, act four. And in act five, we've got all of scene one and all of scene three, the concluding scene. But we don't have the penultimate, the next to last scene of this fabulous play that all of these Shakespeare scholars say, it's a masterpiece. It's best. It's the best thing he ever wrote. Now, what are we going to do? Now, here's one thing we can do. We could give the play to a group of highly trained, experienced Shakespearean actors. People have spent their lives immersed in all things Shakespeare. They know his culture. They know his writing style. They've performed all of his plays. They have them memorized. They've spent their lifetime so that Shakespeare is kind of second nature to them, okay? We could ask them, take two years and study this play. Host conferences, write essays on this play, memorize this play. And at the end of two years, come back to Birmingham, come back to Homewood and perform the play. Now, what are these guys going to do? Well, they'll perform Act 1 just like it's written in Act 2 and Act 3 and Act 4. And when they get to Act 5, they do Scene 1 just like it's written. What do they do with Scene 2, though? They improvise, right? Based on everything they know about Shakespeare, right? They improvise a scene that fits, that fits Shakespeare, that fits this play, that fits all four acts plus the scene that's already happened, and that fits what else? The final scene, they, they improvise a scene that fits like a glove into the spot. Now, I didn't make the story up. A, a really famous and smart theologian did. But here's what's good about it. It shows us what the early church was doing with Scripture. You see, this book is not an engineering handbook. It's not an encyclopedia. It's a story. It's one single, huge, sprawling, capacious narrative with a single plot line. And look at it this way. Like five acts, like Shakespeare's play. Act one, like any good Shakespeare play, this is where you're introduced to the major characters and life is as it should be. That's Genesis chapter one through Genesis two. We're introduced to the major characters, God, creation, and humans, and everything is right. What happens in act two? Conflict, okay? So act two is Genesis 3 through 11. This is where something bad happens, right? The dead body shows up. This is where all of a sudden the relationships get out of kilter. There's rebellion in God's kingdom. Now, when it comes to the Bible, we call Genesis 3 through 11 the fall, okay? Act three, this is what we call complication or in English literature, rising action. This is Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. This is the part of the story where the conflict keeps getting worse between all of the major characters. Act four in English literature, what's the fourth moment of the plot? It's the climax. This is the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is where the, the conflict reaches its greatest point of tension. Then act five. 
the denouement, the resolution. This is where everything is worked out. If it's a comedy, everything gets better. If it's a tragedy, it goes worse. In this sense, the Bible is a comedy. In that technical sense of the term, because we have from right after the Gospels, Acts until Revelation, the outworking of what happened in that climactic moment. Now, we have three scenes, though. In Act 5, scene 1, this is Acts to Jude. This is how the early church lived out of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is how they took his life, death, and resurrection, and they improvised it faithfully and sometimes unfaithfully in their world. And we have Act 5, scene 3, right? We know the end of the story. We know where this thing's going to end up. But we're living right now in Act 5, scene 2, and there's no script. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to worship on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. We had to improvise that, right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say what to do when your parents and your hearts are breaking, does it? It doesn't tell me what to do if my children, you know, experiment with drugs. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell Stephen what to do for his vocation as he's trying to figure this out. In fact, if you try to treat the Bible that way, you're going to be a very frustrated person, right? If you try to treat it like an encyclopedia, trying to find the little part that tells you what to do, where to go to school or whatever. No, that's not how scripture work. Now, look, I played saxophone for a long time in junior high and high school, and it paid for a lot of my college. And when I was learning how to play jazz, now I'm not a great saxophonist. When I was learning how my, my teachers told me, look, Aubrey, just listen to the master. Listen to Miles Davis, right? Uh, li- li- listen to Winford Marsalis. Memorize what they do. Transcribe it. And, and do it over and over and over until their improvisation gets in your bloodstream. And then one day, you'll break out on your own. That's why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were immersing themselves in the melody that had been faithfully played for millennia. Because they had to figure out how to faithfully carry on the melody in a brand new situation. That changed all the rules of the game. So here we are today. Thousands of years later, trying to figure out how to live faithfully in this world. And if we don't learn to read the Bible as a story, as the only true story. See, that's the gig. That's the trick. How does the Bible function authoritatively? It functions with the authority of a story, which is different than the authority of a rule book. This is why I'm convinced a lot of people in this community don't spend a lot of time reading the Bible. Because they already know what it says. You see, when I've got the engineering handbook for my DVD player. Once I read it and I figure out how to plug it in and tell it what time it is, what do I do with the engine? What do I do with that little handbook? I throw it away. In fact, it's even printed on cheap paper, right? With those little staples that aren't all the way down and they stab you in the finger and you rub your finger, right? Why is it printed like that? Because with data, once you've got it, you no longer need the book, right? But why did we recently buy Oliver Twist in a hardback version? It doesn't matter if I know what the story says. See, I treat stories differently, don't I? And I think there's a lot of people who don't read that bit of the Bible anymore because I've already read it. already know what it says. Why were they devoting themselves and immersing themselves in Scripture? Why? Because that's how you treat a story that functions authoritatively. You immerse yourself in it so that you can live in a way that's faithful to the melody that has gone before and faithful to the place where this song is going to end. Now, we've got to be honest. Church history is littered 
with examples of individuals and groups and movements whose improvisations turned out bad, right? They weren't on key. They got offline somehow. They weren't faithful. And, and I think that's a warning to us. It's a warning that there's a lot at stake here. So what are we to do? How can we faithfully honor God as he works authoritatively through his scripture? How can we really let scripture have its powerful effect as a dynamic force of God calling us and shaping us as kingdom agents? I think two things in closing. First of all, we need a deeper and greater liturgical engagement with Scripture. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. This is Luke 4, 14 through 21. This is the passage Jill read. It says that Jesus is in the synagogue. It's in the context of a worship service. And he rolls the scroll out and he, and he reads this passage of Scripture from Isaiah. The reason Luke included that in his gospel, one of the reasons, and one of the reasons here we are 2,000 years later doing virtually the same thing that Jesus did, right? Scripture's been read, and now somebody's teaching on it. One of the reasons is because this way of engaging Scripture, engaging Scripture in the context of a worship service, it is the primary way that we are to engage with Scripture. Look, think about what I'm saying in this way. If if you had a choice of losing your eyes or your ears, when it comes to the Word of God, what I'm saying is you should lose your eyes. If you have to choose ever again being able to read the Bible on your own or being able to hear it read in the context of a Christian worship service, you choose hearing it read in worship every single time. That is the primary way that the Bible tells us we engage with the authority of God working through Scripture. It's not the only way, but it is the privileged and primary way. Now, when we get to be a part of a service like this, we hear Scripture read, we sing Scripture, we pray Scripture, I teach Scripture. The Catholic Church has this very famous document that came out of Vatican II called the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. And they hit the nail on the head. Listen to what it says. It is Christ himself who speaks when the Holy Scriptures are read in church. See, what I'm saying to you is that when somebody reads Scripture up here, don't dare think, oh, this is just warm up for the sermon. Something is going on that is fundamentally different than is going on now. This is why... Paul said to Timothy, do not forsake the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So let me encourage you that when our church gathers and we have these long passages of Scripture read, to work hard at more deeply engaging with God, who is in that moment embodied in Christ, moving through the congregation and affecting his kingdom. Now, for me, the way that I try to work hard in that moment is I don't open my Bible. I don't try to follow along, but I try my hardest to bear in to what is being read and to listen because I know in this moment, it's not Jill reading to me. It's not Kate reading to me. It's not Alan. It is Christ himself speaking. That's why we say, thanks be to God at the end of a scripture reading. This is part of the reason that for centuries all over the world, Christians have given their lives up 
in order to attend a worship service. Because something happens here that cannot happen in any other place. Because when the body of Christ is gathered in this moment, it is a thin space. Heaven and earth intersect in a unique way that you cannot replicate by yourself. This is a privileged, this is the most important way that we engage with scriptures. Number two, we need a greater and deeper private engagement with scripture. And I want to say that your private engagement with Scripture is really preparation to get your heart in the right place for the public engagement. But it is nonetheless important. This is what Paul told Timothy. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. Isn't that an incredible picture that God is breathing out Scripture? And because of that, it is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God, the man of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. As an individual, you need to discipline yourself to read and pray and memorize and meditate and study and puzzle over Scripture. If you're going to faithfully honor the authority of Scripture, to really let it have its powerful, transformative effect in your life, then you need both of these. Public, liturgical engagement, and private. Now look, I know it's intimidating. This thing is really complicated. And and we're going to have lots of time in the future to to talk about how to read it. I'm, I'm convinced one of the reasons that a lot of people don't read it is because you open it and you're just like, holy cow, that's weird. I don't understand. And it's the church's fault. It's pastor's fault. Like me, it's preach teachers. We haven't taught people how to read the Bible. We're going to have lots of time for this in the future, but let let me just give you one really easy hint for how to read the Bible. Look at your table contents page. And I want you to write in your Bible, or like I've said before, if you don't like writing in your Bible, write in your neighbor's Bible. Genesis, you can write beside it, chapters 1 and 2, Act 1. That's where you're meeting all the major characters and you're learning how life should be. So if you're reading Genesis 1 to 2, you're thinking, wow, this is what life could be like. Okay, Genesis 3 through 11, chapters 3 through 11. Here is conflict. This is when everything broke. So if you're reading Genesis 3 through 11, you're just you're learning how everything broke down. Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the end of the Old Testament to Malachi. This is the complication. You're seeing the long history of God dealing with his people as things get completely out of kilter. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can write beside them. Act 4, this is the climax, the greatest point of tension. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ where he takes on our great enemy, sin and death, and he defeats the enemy. And then, Act 5, Scene 1, it's the next book, Acts, all the way through the next to last book, Jude. Here's how the early church faithfully improvised the climax into their lives. And then Revelation is Act 5, Scene 3. That's where, what life is going to be like when God finishes his great work of redemption and making all things new. Now, here's what I'm saying. Immerse yourself in Scripture. It's hard. It's like getting good at golf. Don't get frustrated if the first time you go up there, you shank it. You've got to just commit yourself to it. We need people in our church who are falling in love with God and with Scripture. And for us to claim a high view of the authority of Scripture means that we will soak ourselves in Scripture. 
We will immerse ourselves in Scripture by constantly reading it and, and studying it and frequently turning to it. Why? Because that is how we will experience God's power at work in our lives, bringing about His kingdom, restoring Shalom. That's God's purpose for Scripture. And we want to be a part of that. We want to be kingdom agents as a church and as individuals. Let's pray.